Greetings. I'm Steve Van Cor, and this is the FCCMA Podcast, a service produced by and for the Florida City and County Management Association. I'm your host. Each episode, we interview a city or a county leader who's in a position to share interesting and useful insights into the operations of local government here in the Sunshine State. I'm really excited about this episode because it is a rare day when we get something that is so I just think a brand new concept as you're driving along, listening to this podcast, uh, listening to this interview, I think this is going to open your eyes to a new way of viewing your municipality, your county, and looking at things in in a kind of a new prism. Our guest today probably been located in some of the best places in Florida. Her name is Sarah Hannah Spurlock, and she's the, ready for this? Here it is the nighttime economy manager for the city of Fort Lauderdale. Sarah, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, I'm happy to be here, Steve. Well, and and before we get to the punchline of what is a nighttime economy manager, what does it do? And I want to spend a whole episode on that because I think there's so many tendrils that we can go down as to why this is cool, where it came from, how does it work, and why this is going to be the future especially for larger urban areas. But before we do that, tell tell us a little bit about your journey. Tell your schooling. How'd you get how'd you get into this? How did you arrive here? So I've worked in local government for over 20 years. I um, got my master's in public administration from the University of Kansas, Rock Chalk Jayhawk, um, which is <laughs> known for its local government program. So upon graduating, I worked for the city of Abilene, Texas for a few years. And then I moved to the town of Palm Beach um, here in South Florida, Palm Beach County. Some pretty well-known residents. Yes, very (laughs) well-known. Jeff Green. uh, One in particular. That's right, Donald Trump. Yeah, exactly. Um, And then I moved to the city of Sunrise, which is a suburb of Broward County, where where Fort Lauderdale is, and um, the city of Key West, and now I'm at the city of Fort Lauderdale. And and I'm right. The the big guitar in the sky that's in Sunrise, right? Uh, it's in Hollywood, actually. That's oh, okay. where the um, the Seminole Hard Rock Casino is. The casino is, yeah, that's right. Okay, I, for some reason I thought it was in Sunrise. Um, and so uh, during that journey, how did that lead up to? I mean, you were in Key West, Palm Beach, really some of the nicest communities in the state. How did that lead up to your uh, uh, getting into the criteria of, to get involved with the city of Fort Lauderdale? So there, there really wasn't any criteria for the nighttime economy manager position in Fort Lauderdale because it, it was brand new and it's really pretty new in general. So um, my experience working in local government for so many years and uh, my familiarity with nighttime, nightlife, uh, particularly in Key West, I think played a big part in them choosing me to hold that position. Yeah, because if you think of Key West, there really are almost two identical, it's two different economies, right? In the day, it's scuba diving, snorkeling, uh, you know, parasailing, biking around the streets, going to the butterfly uh, exhibit, 
walking up and down Duval, enjoying right that that the the water and the outdoors. And then the sun goes down. It's like everybody takes a nap, and then they wake back up, and there's a whole different world. Uh, tattoo parlors, henna shops, uh, you know, obviously drinking and 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 wonderful, amazing restaurants. A whole a whole. It's like a whole different world. You could shut down one or the other; it would still be fabulous. But when you combine the two, and and so I guess your work in Key West kind of prepared you for. Hey, we want to go ahead and look at our economy differently looking at just the nighttime economy. Yeah, for, for sure. Um, I mean, you're absolutely right. We, we, there is the, the, those two components of life in Key West. I, I would argue that the, the, the late, the drinking and the tattoo parlors and, and those sorts of things are, are pretty much active almost 24 hours a day. In Key West. <laughs> um, but, but yes, the, the idea that such a large part of their economy is dependent on that nighttime activity is something is is a kind of focus that more and more cities are looking at um, or should be looking at. Well, what's what I like about now. So you said in, in our pre-interview that this is this whole concept of having a nighttime economy, you know, viewing the prism of your municipality through, day, you know, the, the clock. We usually planners look at, you know, rural versus urban parts versus suburban parts. Uh, planners look at different types of economy in terms of labor force, service employees, uh, manufacturing jobs. But now to look at it through a different prism of what happens in the day, you know, office work, blah, 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 what happens at night and reviewing that through a different prism. Um, th- this is a new concept. You said it started in, in in Europe. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so in, in Amsterdam, most specifically, they they realize Amsterdam, for anyone who spent any time there, is has a very active nightlife, a very active social, um, sociable community. And there was unification among the nighttime businesses that we really should um, do more to lobby and advocate for our our ability to be successful at night. So they created, not the city, but uh, a nonprofit that was created um, to join those forces and to work with the city to improve policies uh, focused on nightlife in Amsterdam. So it's almost like you have a sundown chamber of commerce. Once the sun goes down, the new chamber steps up and says, yeah, because, you know, what happens a lot with these with these in these scenarios is nighttime almost is um, like hostile to the rest of the city. Right. You, you find a lot. Oh, we need to limit this. We need to limit that. Because I remember Fort Lauderdale, probably a decade ago now, went through a little bit of a personality crisis where that used to be one of the hot spots for spring breakers and somewhere along the line I said you know we don't want to be spring break central anymore because what happens in spring break people get too drunk they fall out of buildings they crash cars they they destroy um property etc cetera, etc cetera, when you know things get wild um but yet you want to say we still want people to come downtown at night we still want Las Olas Boulevard to be vibrant uh, and all the things that go along with it. And so this kind of sundown chamber of commerce approach. 
and did you use that model in Amsterdam to kind of fashion what you guys are doing now in, in Fort Lauderdale? Um, it, to, to a degree. So um, Amsterdam worked um, with a, a company in, in the United States called Responsible Hospitality Institute, RHI. Um, so RHI used the Amsterdam model to, to sort of create a model that we might be able to apply here in the United States. So um, that's, that's how Fort Lauderdale got started was they hired RHI to do a study um, here in Fort Lauderdale back in 2017, I believe. Um, and then RHI put together a recommendation for what that might look like in Fort Lauderdale. Kind of looked at the different unique entertainment areas and what the possibilities in those, those areas could be, but also how to unify those areas. So there's, there's a tendency, especially in urban cities, to have separate pockets of social activity, sociable activity, um, and there are silos. So instead of working together and joining together to create a real destination in Fort Lauderdale, we have the tendency to create destination in these silo neighborhoods. So, so, how does that, so yeah, so how does that work? So are you, what is the plan now for Fort Lauderdale? So you've been there how many years? Four years. Four years. So you come in after this RHI study, they say, we, and one of the recommendations I presume was to create a department and have a leader in that department who will oversee the implementation of this plan. What, what are the first steps that you, you began to take? The, the primary reason that the, the way this position was sold to the stakeholders and to our policymakers was um, more about enforcement and regulation. So back to your earlier comments, you know, nothing, nothing good happens after midnight. That's kind of our, our running joke in, in, our, in this profession, a myth that we want to dispel. Um, so they... They wanted to create a team that would address those late night nuisance calls, you know, primarily noise. Noise is a big issue in urban cities. Um, so I had a team of police officers, code compliance officers, and sanitation workers, because we also picked up garbage um, all through the night uh, to, uh, to address those issues. Um, after about a year, however, they, the whole team was cut in the budget. So that left a team of 11, now became a team of one. <laughs> <laughs> so my, my mission changed from enforcement and regulation to more advocacy um, and support for the business community, doing what I could do to help them navigate the bureaucracy um, that is city government. And because I am a bureaucrat and I've worked in this field for 20 years, I feel like I'm particularly able to help them with, you know, with their permitting questions, um, just with questions about city government in general. Because so, you, so, so part of your role now is to help the um, those whose business depends on a robust, you know, nighttime activities to help them navigate city hall, navigate the the bureaucracy, as it were, uh, of how to make sure they, they're they're compliant, but they're doing good things 
and they're and they're part of a team. Are you also um, engaging them to, in a way that they they're more of a unified voice? You know, I, let me give an example. So I know we have restaurant districts. Back in the old days, it was like, oh, I open up a restaurant. If a restaurant opens up near me, that's competition. Now we more view. Oh, wait a second. If we can create a restaurant district, this area will become a destination for those eating out. Are you helping coordinate? And, and organize some of those activities and, and pods so that they kind of work together? Yeah, that is definitely one of my, um, res- not responsibilities, but one of my goals is to unite the hospitality industry in Fort Lauderdale. So we have a Florida Restaurant Lodging Association and we have a Broward County office, um, but that's all of Broward County. Um, I, I try to just get the group, the the restaurants, hotels, bars, museums to work together in Fort Lauderdale. Um, so my influence for that is somewhat limited because I work for the government and I, I don't want them to feel like I'm the one creating that unification because there might be some conflict at some point with some decisions we need to make. But I think it's important for them all to be on the same page so that they can come forward with a unified message, with a unified request about what kind of assistance they need from the city, from the county, from the state, from the feds. So could it be something as simple slash complicated as, all right, so we now all are familiar with rideshare, whether it's Uber, Lyft, or now taxi services are moving into this as well. Um, so Sarah, let me ask you a question specifically to the types of issues that the nighttime economy folks might be dealing with, which with, with ride share being so popular now, a lot of times what happens on, and especially in denser urban areas, someone comes out of the hotel, they're, they go, oh, they call for a ride share and they're not available right away because they're still checking out or whatever. And that car has to wait. Now, what happens a lot of times that could cause gridlock, it can cause confusion for pedestrians that I know a lot of downtown areas are trying to work with these rideshare companies to say, hey, park over here, not here. Hey, let's have designated pickup areas. Are those the kinds of problems and issues that they bring to you that you help them navigate City Hall to, to help resolve? Yeah, that that's exactly the type of issue. We've actually um, implemented a couple of rideshare groups in Fort Lauderdale a couple areas in downtown and and on the beach and we've we've got a pretty good system for our big special events particularly on the beach like the boat show or our big music festivals um so yeah that's exactly uh, what we're talking about we want to make sure that there is uh, you know when this when the sun goes down everything changes uh, the, the the lens that we live through um a perspective Everything changes when the sun goes down, particularly with regards to safety. So making sure that we've got uh, modes of transportation in place and and safe measures to get to that transportation is definitely one of the things that I look at. Okay, so it's it's, it's an interesting thing because when I heard nighttime economy manager, I just thought literally like a chamber of commerce for the nighttime activities, but it's more than that. It's also... Uh, making sure there's regulations that that can support while support those nighttime activities while encouraging public safety and, and protecting the public. Uh, you also in our in our pre-interview, you also brought up another interesting subject. We were, you know, uh, 
we obviously have rush hour, right? And then obviously, if you live in South Florida, you know what rush hour really is. We don't know that in Tallahassee, by the way. It's like <laughs> there's a little bit more traffic and that's about it. But the encouraging businesses, and I think with post-COVID, hopefully we're now, we could start saying that, um, more people can be flexible in their work hours, which would support a nighttime economy, but not in the way you were talking about earlier, which is just entertainment and you know, bars and restaurants, et cetera. Talk a little bit about some of the movement in, in both globally and in Florida and in the nation on terms of some transitioning in terms of to free up some of our roads and other infrastructure. Are you dealing with some of that as well? Yeah. So, I mean, we live in a, a 24-hour world now. So the, the typical traditional nine to five, Monday through Friday workday while it may still be the primary work schedule, it's definitely not the only work schedule. So I advocate for uh, creating available services and amenities that are provided around the clock and not just from nine to five. So I, I would like for the city of Fort Lauderdale to offer more um, non-public safety services after five. Um, there are many things you can do online, granted, but if, if you needed to talk to somebody at City Hall, if you needed to pay your water bill at City Hall, that there would be somebody there at six o'clock um, to help you do that. Um, it, but we're still operating in this nine to five thinking, and, and that's one of my big goals is to change that way of thinking. I also believe by extending these amenities that are available and by not just the city, but other businesses, that we can um, allevi alleviate, if not eliminate, rush hour. If, if not everybody got off work at five and we spread that out over many hours, then there would be no rush hour. And we can talk about those making better use of the roads and assets and infrastructure that we have by spreading out the time for which those assets and infrastructure are being used. And, you know, that's something you can do in a larger city because you can stagger service hours, right? You could say right now it's let's just use the nine to five. Uh, and now you could say, well, we do permitting from nine to five. But if you have several of your staff start their workday at 11, Several of your staff started at nine. Now, there's obviously problems like this East Coast, West Coast time when you have a client on the West Coast where sometimes team meetings can't take place or this limited overlap. But by extending those service hours, A, you're, you're reducing traffic by having your staff staggered, right? But B, you can offer services to people where they are and when they are as opposed to we're only open nine to five. I mean, if you look at law enforcement, we don't say, well, we don't we don't ticket anybody after five because the cops all go home. We have round the clock. Now, obviously, they feather it based on need and timing. But I think what you're saying is if, if the city government can stretch and be more flexible, then businesses can follow it. Is that is that fair or is it the other way around? Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I mean, it, you know, we we would we would hope that it would all happen at the same time. But but somebody's somebody's got to start that process. And I, I try to encourage the business community at a grassroots level to consider changing their own hours. Um, you know, there was the, at the height of the pandemic, when, before folks were able to get vaccinated, 
there was a concern about going out for lunch, um, you know, during from 12 to one or 12 to two, whenever people typically ate lunch and people didn't want to do that because they didn't want to be in a restaurant with a lot of people. So, you know, I would argue that if your day started later, maybe you're not eating lunch at 12 or one, but you're eating lunch at two or three. So you're, you're spreading out when you're consuming um, services and amenities and you're making better use of the space that we have and, and able to maintain a, that social distance we were looking for. That's excellent. You know, I, I view this through the prism of, you know, I remember reading about school districts, right? You have these incredible assets, right? This, this incredible number of rooms and schools and uh, properties that for three months a year sit vacant and uh, largely vacant. Okay. And so to say, wow, is there a way we can feather things? So those assets are used all the time and we really haven't cracked that nut. Right. But, but looking at the day, the 24 hour cycle in the same way you look at the 12 month cycle for schools to say, Hey, if we can shift some of these um, areas of workload, uh, uh, travel, like you said, lunchtime can change, then you can fill in the gaps on those assets. Because I, as someone who worked in the restaurant industry, at 11.10, things are crazy till about 1.15. And then everything is dead. And if you could right. spread that out, you you know, you can you could provide better service, better thing, and, and and you make better use of the of the government's assets. I mean, look at wastewater treatment and, and utilities. Yes. Utilities. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. And the, um, you know, the, the, the talk about the schools being empty for three months of the year, you know, we also have some of our businesses that operate mostly at night. They're basically sitting empty during the day. So there's, you know, there's also a movement in urban cities and in planning industry of shared space. You know, can, can someone use that space during the day to set up their laptop and make their Zoom calls or do whatever. And then at night, it, it becomes the restaurant bar or whatever the case may be. Oh, that's really interesting. And, and that goes, and that also goes for city infrastructure, right? parking, parking garages, and then other service, other government services. You know, when my children were little, I used to be so frustrated that the library would close relatively early. Uh, I'm out of work and I shoot, I didn't get to the library in time to take the kids in. Uh, and they changed that, by the way. <laughs> I think they changed it for me. Um, yeah. <laughs> so what are, what, are the, what are the aspects of this? Uh, can we share with other city managers that they can learn from your experience in terms of how they can stretch the government resources to provide better service around the clock? What, what, what other experiences have you gained that you can share with them? The, the important takeaway I've learned over the last four years is there, there is no cookie cutter approach to this concept or to this philosophy. And, and I say that because the desires and the, the wishes of the community and the community stakeholders and the neighbors living in the community vary from city to city. And you've got to have the buy-in from those stakeholders in order to make any sort of effort or initiative successful. So uh, one, the, the concept that I push um, is the, I, the idea of an 18-hour city. So the 18-hour city was 
developed, created, invented by the real estate industry. Um, those are cities like Nashville, Austin, uh, Denver, Kansas City, cities that are not quite 24-hour cities. So they're not the New York City, Chicago's, LA's, but they're they offer similar amenities and they're just a little bit more laid back and the cost of living is just a little bit less so that it makes them more desirable for millennials who are now becoming parents um, or are now pushing 40 and need to be adults um, to, to live in a, an environment where all those amenities are at their fingertips within walking distance, um, but at an affordable price. So I think that Fort Lauderdale is getting there. I think we have all the uh, potential to be an 18-hour city, but it requires a mindset that says, you know, I, I get that you don't want us to be active at three in the morning, but, you know, we probably need to do a little bit more to be active and vibrant and safe at 10 o'clock at night. So I think what you're saying, too, is this cannot be something that the city decides to do and mandate downward, but it has to be a shared agreement and understanding and say, what are the things we can do together? What what do you as a business community see as opportunities and how can we support those opportunities and then have this kind of shared journey? You take a step, we'll take a step. You take a step, we'll take a step. I mean, that sounds to me like one of your bigger takeaways and be flexible. Yeah, it for sure. And, you know, I'll bring up a, an example that we're, we're dealing with right now in the city, um, noise. So we're growing um, and, and especially since the pandemic, you know, we were shut down for so long and now all of a sudden everything's open and we've got so many new restaurants opening up, so many new venues opening up and noise has just become a, a big topic of concern, a big topic of discussion. And, and finding that noise from, from music venues, noise from yeah. cars, honking. Well, it, it's really that, you know, that's a big part of it is it's, it's not just noise from bars and restaurants. It's that mixed with construction noise fire trucks, traffic, people talking on the street. It, it's that ambient noise that is, it's really causing that concern. But the finding the balance between maintaining a quality of life for her, for our neighbors who live in the downtown core and, and the necessity for these businesses to be successful um, is, a, is a very delicate balance. It's very difficult to achieve. So yeah, because finding, if you want to pass an ordinance that says, you know, for example, no loud engines on cars, uh, you're gonna you're gonna send a signal to folks that hey, we we you're not welcome, and they're like, I'll go somewhere else, right? Yeah. Yes, exactly, and 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 that's a big concern with some of these businesses that I hear from. You know, maybe we shouldn't come to Fort Lauderdale if if this is the kind of pushback that we get about the the sound that we're putting out. So it, but it's, it's reached a, a pinnacle of, of um, concern in the community. So now we have a commission appointed committee made up of residents and business owners to try to figure out what that balance might be. And, and this is, this is not just Fort Lauderdale. This is by no means unique to Fort Lauderdale. I hear this from all cities that I that I have been in contact with, that I network with. Uh, New York City has this problem. Um, it just noise from the venues. And we're in a, we live in a very mixed use 
downtown environment nowadays. And that separation just isn't there anymore. You've got bars and restaurants right next to residential development. And we need to figure out as city officials, as community stakeholders, how to how to make that balance, how to make it work for everybody. Well, with a thousand people a day coming into our state, they've got to go somewhere. And I think what you're also having to address is the, you know, as we get more crowded, we all have to learn how to live together. I remember reading an article about in the 1970s was really when, you know, suburbia took off in America and pet ownership took off as well, which is, you know, wait, wait, what? And I remember as a kid, we had a, a Siberian Husky. And instead of walking him and walking with the plastic bag behind you to pick up his poop, right? You just let him out the front door. And, yeah. you know, and I remember as a kid being, you know, bitten by a German shepherd while I was riding my bike down the street. Another time, uh, another dog of some mutt variety uh, attacked me while I was playing in the street with some friends. You, you just let your dog out in the street. And so as, as America grew, right, uh, and as we learned to live together, we, we these rules didn't exist. When you lived in a rural community, I mean, this goes back to Oklahoma, right, the ranchers and the farmers, uh, you know, as you grow, you have to start having rules of engagement to accommodate each other. It sounds like to me, Sarah, you're kind of on the front lines of that accommodation. Yes, that's that's the way I def, that's the way I look at it. And I, I'm so I, I'm looking at it from both sides. Um, I, I don't just have that that hospitality business perspective. I've also got the the government perspective because, you know, Believe it or not, there is a method to most of our madness. So <laughs> it's it's getting those two sides to to talk to each other, which I have found um, that with the hospitality industry industry in particular, they've always kind of been the redheaded stepchildren of the business community. And my goal is to change that image, to change that perspective, and to get them a seat at the table. And this pandemic has has gone a long way to attaining that goal. I mean, that's one of the lights of, of that gloomy tunnel of the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, it's hit, it's hit reset on how we communicate, how we engage, how we participate. You know, and, and I started this by saying this is probably a larger challenge and uh, uh, thing that you have to answer in large cities. But I'm, I'm reflecting on um, I recently visited in Apalachicola, Florida, which is up in the Panhandle, small, beautiful little community on the river. And they're struggling with this day-night uh, identity as well. And let me give you an example, Sarah. You know, they have really well-done restaurants, amazing uh, little bistros, et cetera, a great little craft brew place. But yet everything else is shut down and shuttered at night. And it's almost like they exist in two different worlds and, you know, someone's walking out of a restaurant, it could be even 7, 7.30. Gee, if the Orvis shop was open, if the, uh, the bait and tackle shop was open, that if they coordinated better, if the downtown docks were lit where you can take a walk on the water at night, it's, it's, if they were better coordinated, I think it would create a better overall experience for a, really what is a wonderful uh, little town in, 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 the, in the Panhandle, a little uh, old fishing village with a lot of access to water. So this might not just be a problem confronting large um, urban areas, which you know, you're dealing with, uh, obviously people living in these downtown areas, unlike Appalachia, but coordinating day and night activities 
could be uh, very productive, uh, even in very small towns. Well, absolutely. And the example that you that you just gave about the small about the small town. I mean, if you have folks going into a restaurant and eating and coming out at eight, nine o'clock at night and the streets are empty and everything's shut down, there's also a safety factor involved. Um, activity creates organic safety. Um, you, you have a, a deserted street in the middle of the night. That's that's where crime happens. But act, people out and about creates activity, which creates an, an innate safety for the area. And, and while you've got some places open, it's better to have more places open. Yeah, and, and it's better for the business. And it's like you said, it's better for the community. And in a contrast that I remember walking down Las Olas and um, there was an art gallery that was open after dinner. And I thought, that's so cool that they um, they are coordinated enough where it's not like the art gallery is at nine to five. And if I'm an art gallery People are walking around, they're feeling good. They got a couple of glasses of wine and a good piece of grouper under their belt. Hey, they may be in the mood to buy uh, some Absolutely. art, which is what you're trying to you're trying to do. Uh, con- contrast that with my experience in Apalachicola. After dinner, we're walking around, walk down to the dock, which was largely empty, uh, right on the river there, and then walk over, hey, let's go get you know, a scoop of ice cream. And the ice cream shop is closed. And you're like, darn it, they kind of missed an opportunity. It's all these people wanting to walk around. Instead, they get in the car, go to the Hogly Wogly. Yes, there's a Hogly Wogly. <laughs> and they go get the ice cream there and bring it back to their condo. That That's a, that's a lost opportunity for that little business. Yeah, what, 100%. I've, I've never understood the, the galleries and the museums that close at five. I think you are missing an entire opportunity. And Going back to your example with the libraries, I, I've tried to encourage our public library here, which is a county division, not a city division, that closing at five or four, whenever the, the different branches closed, is you're, you're completely eliminating any ability to have family time at the library. Because I think at after dinner, um, taking your kid to the library w- would be a great activity. And that's it's just no longer possible when you're closing so early. And I, I also know that a lot of these libraries close early because um, libraries have become a safe haven for our homeless population. And we're, so we're, we're in, in an effort to alleviate one problem, we're creating another, I believe. And it's, it's negatively impacting the ability for our nighttime to serve is not just a place for people to get drunk and party, but for families to spend some quality family time together. Absolutely. And, you know, take riverboat rides or take a yes. nice stroll along the waterway. Tampa, Tampa, I will commend, has done a pretty good job. Uh, let me change that. A very good job of um, uh, parts of its downtown are really f- getting that feeling of um you know, day night activities and it, it's it's relatively seamless. Uh, the boats pull up to the docks. Uh, people are indoors, outdoors. Sun goes down. There's still much, much activity um, down there. Now, whether government services are keeping up with that, I, I just don't know. But uh, it's, it's an excellent perspective on how to stretch your resources, how to make your assets go farther, how to serve your public, which is changing as well. You're right, post-pandemic or during this pandemic, we've changed how we work. We changed how we commute. <laughs> We change how we conduct podcasts. 
uh, all of it is, is, is changing. And, you know, I know government, I love it is because they can be very innovative, but sometimes we lag. It sounds to me like what you guys are doing now for four years is really trying to get ahead of that curve. Yeah, that's exactly what we're doing. And it's, it, it's still a, a fledgling program. Um, I, I, most of my work is education and, and communicating and working with the different businesses, letting them know the possibilities of a nighttime focus, um, but also, you know, convincing my own, my own staff here in, internally. So it's a, it's a, a tall mountain to climb. Yeah, so it sounds like a cultural educational challenge you have as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it would be cool if you checked into the office at 11 o'clock at night and didn't leave till eight o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> that ain't going to happen. No. Well, Sarah, Sarah Hannah Spurlock, the city of uh, Fort Lauderdale, nighttime economy manager. Uh, before we close, I'd like to ask you, we, we ask everybody, uh, and this is low hanging fruit, but tell us something cool about the city of Fort Lauderdale that we may not be aware of that might, people might want to visit and, and, and be a part of. There's a lot that's cool about Fort Lauderdale. One, one of the, my, my responsibilities at work are um, signing film permits. People are always amazed at just how many film production companies come to Fort Lauderdale to film their commercials, their um, video for web content, uh, their B-roll footage. Uh, we, we get a lot of stuff down on the beach, folks wanting to, to film down on the beach. Mm -hmm. and, and I just think that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah, you know, I got to tell you, uh, all that video, I was down there and there was a, a film crew on the road. I love sitting outside at a restaurant and I don't know why I love this, but maybe because I've spent so much time in the rural panhandle watching the uh, large container ships lining up at Port Everglades. Some of those incredibly, I guess you guys host the largest cruise ships uh, in the world yes. at Port Everglades uh, and just watching them you know, lined up out there is really a, a cool sight. I totally agree. Our our tourism industry with those cruise ships, um, the the diversity melting pot of folks that we get here in Fort Lauderdale is really something. And it's it's nice because it's while we we often get lumped in with the Miami area, there is such a big difference between Fort Lauderdale and Miami. And Fort Lauderdale is just that that respite from the chaos that is Miami. And it's just a, such a great place to visit and spend time on the beach and eat at our wonderful, fabulous restaurants. And we've got so much culture here. Um, it's just a really neat community. No, it really is. And, and in fact, I, I liken Fort Lauderdale is to Miami, what Philadelphia is to New York. From a public relations perspective, you know, Miami's the big dog, but, you know, I, and if you've not been, for, for Philadelphia, have some amazing, incredible parks, hiking, biking areas within the city limits, a beautiful river that runs right through the middle of it. And people don't seem to realize what an incredible city Philadelphia is to go visit and enjoy. Likewise, Fort Lauderdale is really an endless uh, sea of opportunities. I love the, you know, they call it the Venice, uh, Florida but you guys have what twelve hundred miles of navigable canals. Is is that is that did I get that? Yeah, that's that. I don't know the exact number, but that sounds about right. Yeah, everywhere you everywhere you look, there we are. We have water. 
Yeah, um, and, so, and so I, I, you know, Venice has 37 miles of navigable canal. So I think Venice should be called the Fort Lauderdale of Europe. <laughs> you know what? I think I may propose that, Steve. That's a great idea. Let, let me know how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sarah, thank you so much for being on. Uh, folks, this is uh, Steve Van Cor, and this is the FCCMA podcast, a service produced by and for the Florida City and County Management Association. Thank you so much for being with us.